Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility that as early as tomorrow on the 4th of July, Donald Trump could announce he is running for the presidency as a way to get some legal cover from the Justice Department's ruling that a sitting president can't be indicted, along with the opportunity to fleece his MAGA supporters by raising campaign money. Joining us on this 4th of July is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal, and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Tom Mann. Now in an updated version, it's even worse than it was. He is the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported, and we will discuss his article at the Washington Monthly, How Mitch McConnell Made the Senate Even Worse. We will also examine the extent to which Trump is either implicitly or explicitly threatening the Republican Party, that if it does not go along with him, he will run as an independent, taking his MAGA followers with him. Then, as we celebrate the Republic's founding document, the Constitution, we will look into where we stand as a Republic and how we can form a more perfect Union. Joining us to examine the extent to which plutocratic power has captured our judiciary and economy as the American oligarchy threatens American democracy is Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us is William Forbath, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. Together they are the co-authors of a new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, and we will discuss their essay at the Boston Review, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic and contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann. Now in an updated version, it's even worse than it was. And he's also the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And he has an article at the Washington Monthly, How Mitch McConnell Made the Senate Even Worse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Norman Ornstein. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And what's your sense of where 
the Republican Party is now after these damning revelations from Cassidy uh, Hutchinson, the chief aide to the, the last and final chief of staff of Donald Trump's. So the other night I watched the debate for the Wyoming congressional seat that's held by Liz Cheney, who, of course, has now become particularly famous because of the January 6th committee. There were a number of other candidates on the stage, and uh, it was like a radical clown car of people indulging in conspiracy theories and wacky, far out uh, rhetoric and often an utter ignorance. But the reality of the Republican Party now is that Liz Cheney, who is a deeply conservative person uh, and who, unlike all the others, pledged that she would never violate her vow to the uh, Constitution, her oath of office, is running 30 points behind somebody who is in utter embarrassment. The other uh, week, uh, Lauren Boebert, who is not only a dim bulb, but an absolutely crazy person, one renomination in her congressional district in Colorado. So we're not in a good place there. Now, at the same time, the uh, testimony of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, the other information and facts uh, that the January 6th committee has already amassed, and we know there's a whole lot more to come, has left the Republican Party in a very difficult place. Uh, the National Review, which has long been a supporter of Trump, even if uh, before he ran and uh, won the nomination in 2016, was deeply opposed to him, now has come out with a uh, pretty strong diatribe against him. The Washington Examiner, an extremely conservative newspaper, just did an editorial saying Donald Trump is an embarrassment. Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, one of the most red states and pro-Trump states in the country, uh, said a week or 10 days ago that Donald Trump was responsible for the mayhem on January 6th. More Republicans are starting to get some distance from Donald Trump. How deeply that will go in the base of the party, I don't know. And to be frank, Ian, it's not that they're getting distance from Trump because their moral sensibilities have been devastated. They're getting distance from Trump because they're starting to see him as a giant orange albatross around their necks, that he could well prevail in winning renomination in 2024, and that they would have a big problem on their hands, or that this is going to continue on with even more devastating uh, allegations and information about what Trump did in the months leading up to January 6th and after, and that they're not going to be able to deny it as they have been denying it, or just to try and discredit witnesses as they're now doing uh, with Cassidy Hutchinson. So just to touch again on what you brought up with the embarrassing debate in Wyoming for the one con congressional seat there last Thursday, where Liz Cheney was up against these incredibly inarticulate and ignorant people that would almost sort of in QAnon loony land. And I'm wondering whether, to some extent, it was John McCain that opened the door to those kind of political candidates with his choice of Sarah Palin. 
am I assuming, and maybe it sounds elitist, that prior to then, Americans voted for candidates they thought were better educated and more qualified than they were, and that by choosing Sarah Palin as a candidate, John McCain sent the signal that you can vote for people that are just as unqualified as you are. I, I do think that Sarah Palin was the role model for many uh, who followed. Uh, Michelle Bachman, uh, who, remember, ran for president as well, uh, former representative from Minnesota, and Donald Trump, a little bit of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley uh, and Ron DeSantis there as well. But I think we also have to note that one of the main reasons that so many American voters have completely lost their discernment or their standards has to take us back to Newt Gingrich and back to the late 1970s. The deliberate uh, infusion of tribalism into our politics. Once politics have become completely tribal, and then I will throw in the added uh, pernicious influence of uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch and Fox and uh, Rush Limbaugh and talk radio, all reinforcing this, giving people a set of falsities that they view as facts. But when you've come to believe that the uh, other side is the enemy trying to destroy your way of life, you will look at your candidates and instead of saying, I cannot possibly vote for this person, this person is dishonest, corrupt, not worthy of uh, support, you say, well, if this person loses, then the enemy's trying to destroy our way of life win. And that, I think, has made a, as big a difference as Sarah Palin. You know, we can't forget that Sarah Palin, who is her own version of a clown car, who is now running for the one House seat in Alaska, and uh, while she led the voting in the first round, Alaska now has rank choice voting. So there'll be four candidates uh, in November, and it's not at all clear that she will win. But of course, she's become an embarrassment and she's clinging to any hope that she can get back to some level of relevance here. But we have to remember that when she emerged in 2008, uh, the Republican establishment gushed over her as this fresh face. She did a terrific job at the Republican convention in St. Paul uh, that year with her speech. But as we know from all of the accounts given to us by uh, people who were on that campaign back then, Nicole Wallace, Steve Schmidt, back then it was clear to them that this was a colossal mistake on uh, McCain's part. It was an impulsive choice, one pushed on him by uh, advisors who told him he couldn't possibly pick the person he wanted, which was Joe Lieberman, because they would have a rebellion at their convention. And so he went for somebody he didn't know who had not been uh, completely vetted and who was out of control even back then. But because she was seen as such a fresh face and a hero back then by many on the right, you're exactly right in that she became a model for so many others who have followed. 
And again, I'm speaking with Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal, and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. And he's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. He's also the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide to the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And he has an article at the Washington Monthly, How Mitch McConnell Made the Senate Even Worse. So, Norm Ornstein, let's talk then about what we started out with, and that is, I mean, obviously when Trump first ran back in 2016, he was running essentially to boost the Trump brand. And I don't know that he was serious and didn't think he was going to win, as most people uh, didn't think he was going to win. But now I think it's pretty likely that relatively soon he may announce that he's running for president to kind of get some protection As you know, the Office of Legal Counsel decision in the Justice Department protected Trump and protected him from Mueller because you can't indict a sitting president. He's no longer a sitting president, but I think he assumes that if he announces he's running for the presidency, that might give him some protection. And of course, in announcing he's running for the presidency, he's able to fleece his supporters, which he's very good at and has been doing for some time. So do you think that that is on the near horizon? Let me first address the fleecing of his supporters, because one thing we know from the January 6th committee is that he got people to give him in the aftermath of the election and uh, with what happened in the weeks and months that followed to give him $250 million through an organization to combat the uh, rigged election, as he said. And it turned out that organization didn't even exist. He channeled it through another nonprofit And that group gave, with the money that he had garnered in what is pretty clearly a case of fraud, gave a million dollars to Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, who's now in the hot seat and uh, might well be charged before we even know it with witness tampering um, and perhaps something far worse. Uh, So fleecing his supporters is nothing new for Donald Trump. But I, I actually wish that the Justice Department would, before this holiday, indicate that they have made Donald Trump a target of their uh, inquiry and investigation, because you are exactly right. He is likely to try to uh, accelerate the timing of his announcement that he's running, probably on July 4th, would be my guess, uh, so that if and when the Justice Department goes after him, He can say, see, they're just trying to take me out of the picture because they know I will get reelected by an overwhelming margin. And of course, you're right as well that if somehow he did have the ability to run again and he did win again, he would do two things. The first is he would make sure that there was a Justice Department that could not, under any possible circumstances, charge him with anything. The second, is that he would use that Justice Department and the Secret Service and the military and others to go after all of his enemies. We would be in a very, very bad place. Not that we are in a very good place right now. So given that he controls the Republican Party, or at least the Trumpsters, the the MAGA folk, 
could you make the case that Trump is either implicitly or explicitly blackmailing the Republican Party, saying you've got to stick with me, otherwise I will run as an independent, and that would be a catastrophe for the GOP ticket and, and help the Democrats? I think he is uh, definitely threatening Republicans that if they abandon him, he will bring mayhem upon them. Now, that I think might include, although I'm more skeptical of running as an independent, but it could certainly include uh, running for the nomination. And if he didn't get it, just going after uh, the ultimate winner. We're going to see some test of this, frankly, in the months ahead, because we know from many surveys that uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is, uh, you know, a Trump lookalike except younger, thinner, and perhaps smarter and meaner, it may have the inside track to a nomination in 2024. And we know that Trump is likely to go after him big time now, but would be deeply resentful uh, looking down the road. We have to keep something else in mind, which is there is still a substantial chance that Trump is going to be prosecuted. And what the hearings uh, from the January 6th committee have shown is that it would be a travesty of justice if he were not prosecuted. Whether the prosecution includes incitement to riot, seditious conspiracy, wire fraud, uh, or all of the above, or even some other charges, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, prosecutors know better what fits under elements of the law. Uh, but not to charge him at this point, given what we know, given what was the most damning testimony of uh, Hutchinson, which was uh, Trump saying to his Secret Service people, I know they're coming in with arms. I want them here. Uh, they're not going to hurt me. And let's get rid of those metal detectors, the mags, as he called them, so that you don't have the embarrassing footage of people uh, walking uh, on, around the metal detector with their AR-15s uh, and the Secret Service doing nothing about them. He wanted them mingling in the crowd, and then he made it clear that he wanted them going down to the Capitol, and he made it clear that he wanted to go to the Capitol. And what he wanted to do, I am quite certain, was to march into the House chamber where the House and Senate were meeting ahead of this armed crowd and basically say to the assembled members of Congress, these are very fine people behind me. I don't know what they'll do if you do not now do the right thing and make me president again. And if that didn't work, we would have seen a lot of mayhem and probably using their uh, ties that many of them had to handcuff and march out Democrats from the chamber to get the Republicans remaining to do what he wanted. Uh, if you don't indict for something like that, um, it's, uh, to me, a dereliction of duty. So all of this may be moot, but what we know is we've got a Republican Party that now is torn in a whole host of directions. Not that you have more than uh, Cheney and Kinsinger, a lot of good guys there. You got a lot of bad guys, but you also have some bad guys who know that Trump is an absolute catastrophe, and some at least who have now become convinced of what they weren't before, that he really did lead a violent insurrection against the United States. Well, does that mean that 
we would have seen Trump being able to get march with them. And obviously, it was well planned, and Trump clearly was in the head of the planning. They sent the Proud Boys as a recon, looked for the soft spots, and then they needed the bodies to back up the Proud Boys, who were again the tip of the spear. They broke into their place. And then Trump, would Trump then have ended up on the dais instead of the guy with horns? Very possibly uh, that would have happened. And I think we need to realize how close we came to this insurrection succeeding. And we know that Trump was all for Mike Pence being hanged, that he thought that might intimidate, and but also that if Pence were hanged and many members of Congress were killed, he would then invoke the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. And we know that there were a couple of reasons why, not long before this, he got rid of his secretary, acting secretary of defense and other top defense officials and replaced them with cronies. <clears throat> and first, he made sure that they would not send the National Guard out to help the Capitol Police, which could have quelled the entire riot uh, before they entered the Capitol. And two, that if he did end up invoking the Insurrection Act, that they would issue orders for the military to follow Trump. So, you know, we're in territory that we have never seen in this country before. And uh, of course, let's face it, only eight Republican senators, knowing even then how deeply culpable Trump was without a lot of this most recent damaging information, only eight of them voted to remove him from uh, consideration for running again by voting uh, to convict in the second impeachment. And the rest who knew full well what Trump was and is uh, didn't take that uh, uh, step. So you've still got a Republican Party. And of course, you know, we can never forget that after this violence where members of Congress lives were on the line, where our precious capital was trashed, feces on the wall, things destroyed. Later that afternoon, after they cleaned up enough to resume, two thirds of House Republicans voted that the election had been stolen. We've got a party that is out of control here. It's not just Donald Trump. If Trump goes, we're uh, not necessarily, to say the least, out of the woods. And of course, we haven't even mentioned what Mitch McConnell did to engineer a radical Supreme Court that itself is in the middle of staging uh, an effective coup against the other branches of government. So what you're describing, Norm Ornstein, is almost uh, the American version of the Reichstag fire, with Trump as both the arsonist in the fire brigade. Uh, I'm afraid, you know, while we have long been reluctant to use those analogies to 1930s Germany, they're becoming more and more relevant. So let's just uh, go back a little bit, though. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the possibility of this man-child, this unstable, dangerous, proto-fascist, mentally ill and incredibly sadistic person and I frankly cannot believe that he became president of the United States because I, th I really believe you'd have to scour this country hard to find any human being almost worse than him. So somehow you talk about this darkness. Well, this is the sort of the leader of darkness, but he only cares about himself. We know that. He's, he's, his ego is totally ludicrous and out of control. So if DeSantis starts to do well and already... He's neck to neck uh, with Trump in a New Hampshire poll. 
And if you mentioned the Murdochs earlier, if Reuben and Lachlan Murdoch, which they seem to be doing already, decide they want to back him, isn't Trump going to have a hissy fit? And that's one of the reasons why he will, I think, as we both agree, will declare his candidacy perhaps as early as July the 4th. But at what point do you think he will overtly threaten to take his marbles with him? In other words, take the MAGA folk away from the Republicans. I, I don't think he will do this so long as he believes he's got still a strong possibility, if not likelihood, that he could win a Republican nomination. If it starts to go away from him, then I think you're right. I could see him looking for another option. And of course, that other option, especially if he's still under legal scrutiny, is not going to be all right, I'm just going to pull back and uh, try and live the rest of my life uh, at Mar-a-Lago. It's going to be to continue to be a political candidate. Now, it's tough to run as a complete independent, but there are other parties that are already on the ballot in many, many states. And uh, one can imagine one of them, uh, probably not the Libertarian Party, but one of them uh, being willing to have him as a nominee. I wouldn't rule that out completely. I don't think it's the likely option here. I don't think it's the likely option because I think he's going to pursue the Republican nomination uh, if uh, only to try and have some traction to fend off uh, a prosecution. And because I think there's a real possibility he will be both indicted and convicted. And keep your eye on Georgia, where the uh, uh, indictment may come sooner than it does from the federal government because it's you know just about a slam dunk that he violated Georgia law when he called up uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and said, I just need you to find 11,780 uh, 11, votes, one more than I lost by. You know, he's going to be in bigger trouble there. But your larger point is an important one. The Republican Party and its uh, leaders, the Mitch McConnells uh, of the world in particular, even the Kevin McCarthy's, the governors out there, uh, the people running for governor, the senators who are running, see him now looming as a catastrophe for them. Something where if they embrace him, they could end up alienating voters in the middle, especially as we see more and more of the horrific nature of his behavior and crimes. If they abandon him, they could see a significant share of the MAGA population uh, deciding to punish them at the polls, either by voting against them or not turning out. So they've got a big dilemma on their hands, and I can only say I'm really happy for that. Well, just in closing then, Norm Ornstein, obviously ego and ambition are inherent in politicians. And I don't see how, even though arguably Governor DeSantis is, is Trump's mini-me, that's how he, he came to political prominence, being a literally, a, you know, a sort of kind yeah. of small version, but a dedicated one of Trump. So it'll be odd to see mini-me running against me. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you've got Pompeo and you've got Nikki Haley and others. There's no way you can you can suppress their ambitions. So that's why I think that inevitably there's going to be a collision between Trump and those people who want to replace him. 
I think there'll be a collision between Trump and those people who want to replace him, but also a collision between Trump and people like McConnell, whose number one goal right now is to win back a majority of the Senate. As soon as he sees Trump as more of a liability than an asset, um, he will abandon him. And he's he's made it clear what he thinks about Trump, right? Oh, Shortly after January yes. the sixth, and then yeah. of course he backed down. Of course, so, he engineered him uh, escaping conviction in the Senate too. Exactly. Well, I so much appreciate you joining us here over this Fourth of July weekend. We're going to wait with bated breath to see what happens tomorrow on the Fourth of July. I thank you for joining us, Norm Monstein. Uh, absolutely, Ian. Good to talk with you. Have a happy Fourth. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Norman Ornstein, who's a contributing editor for The Atlantic and contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann. Now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. He's also the co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. And he has an article of the Washington Monthly, How Mitch McConnell Made the Senate Even Worse. We're going to take a brief station break, and as we celebrate the Republic's founding document, the Constitution, we'll be looking into where we stand as a republic and how we can form a more perfect union. And unfortunately, the audio quality on this Zoom recording is not the best, but uh, it's certainly listenable. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world. But the market family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me. And I promise to take you very far. Other mothers better not upset me. Or I'll send a million troops to die at war. To all you Republicans that help me to win, I sincerely like to thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us is William Forbath, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. And he's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. Together, they are the co-authors of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And they have an essay at the Boston Review, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Fishkin and William Forbach. Thank, Thank you. you. So in your, both in your book and in your article at the Boston Review, you make the case that progressives ceded the judiciary and the economy, the judiciary to lawyers and the economy to economists. But the conservatives, on the other hand, weaponized both the judiciary and the economy. And that has led to their lock on power. But I guess the best example of ceding the high ground would be that these six conservatives or right-wingers on the Supreme Court all believe as a foundational belief, apparently, in this notion of originalism, which the Federalists have hoisted. And of course, Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalists, has appointed all of them, five of the six. He were on his list and uh, along with Scalia. 
And of course, he's appointed on that list of most of the judiciary that Trump was able to stack in his uh, short tenure. So what, how did that belief ever get off the ground? The idea that the law and the constitution is frozen in the 1780s. I mean, before women uh, had the votes, when blacks and Latinos were invisible and when you didn't have telephones, radio, television, the internet, flying, you name it. How did this happen? Why wasn't that foundational belief challenged and laughed at from the day it was launched? Here's, here's one way to look at, at, the, at that question, Ian. There's a, a way to understand originalism as a kind of common sense about the role of judges and courts in a democracy. The idea is, is something like this. If, um, if courts are meant to simply interpret and apply the law and not make it up, then they have to follow the rules laid down by the democratic representatives, right? And so uh, if originalism came into being as a kind of modern outlook when conservatives wanted to assail and put down the Warren Court's innovations, reading you know, the constitution in a way that enlarged the rights of unpopular minorities, poor people, criminal defendants, and the like. And so they said, we must return to right, reading what the drafters intended. They wrote the law. If a court is only going to apply it, they have to figure out what it meant to the people who laid it down. They were the ones who were chosen by people to draft our constitution, just as lawmakers in the legislature are chosen by the people to draft our laws. So it had a kind of common sense ring to it. Um, what's happened, however, is first of all, that common sense clashes with so much of how the constitution has evolved over time, both in the hands of the court and even in the hands of the people when you talk about the Civil War and Reconstruction Amendments and the original sort of project of originalism has morphed into something vastly more aggressive, um, not only sort of upending expansive new interpretations, but inventing expansive new interpretations, all the while, as you point out, flouting the fact that right, the constitution was, you know, sort of in some ways cast in order to sort of become filled with new meaning with each generation's understanding of equality. But originalism isn't just a kind of arcane silliness. It has some roots in common sense and it has its roots in the reverence that Americans peculiarly hold for the framers of their constitution as the kind of founding fathers. But Joseph, isn't it by nature inherently reactionary? If we're going back to the 1780s? Oh, I think absolutely. One of the one of the ludicrous aspects of modern originalism is its its general insistence that we should focus on what happened before the Civil War reconstruction and the massive changes to our constitution that took place there. And we shouldn't seriously think about how those moments reframed and reshaped our whole constitutional order. I mean, if you look at a decision like Shelby County versus Holder, in which the Supreme Court says, well, Congress can't make some states 
run their new election laws by the federal government and make sure they're not discriminatory. Uh, the Supreme Court blocks Congress from doing that on the grounds that it's not treating the states equally, that it's not treating the states as having equal sovereignty. When we fought a whole civil war about the question of whether the Southern states had the kind of sovereignty they insisted upon uh, to treat black people very differently in their midst than the other states. And the outcome of the war was a Congress that tried through constitutional amendment and through statutes to try to get some kind of equal citizenship going, the powers that Congress would later use to enact the Voting Rights Act. So I just, I think, yes, it's, it's pretty inherently reactionary, but I mean, the question when you ask about what originalism is, there are versions of it that exist in academic theory. There are versions of it that, as Willie was saying, sound a little bit like common sense, but the version of it actually practiced in politics is conservatism as, is sort of uh, originalism as a rhetorical device for justifying conservative outcomes and making them appear to not be the judicial activism that they are. That's, that's what originalism's function uh, looks like in, in practice when you look at how the court practices it. Well, there've been some hints at judicial activism, uh, William from Clarence Thomas, who wants to get rid of, of contraceptives, same-sex couples or private behavior between same-sex couples along with gay marriage. And the other thing that's really frightening and rearing its ugly head, and we've already seen hints of it from decisions involving OSHA and the CDC, now that they've struck down the EPA's ability to deal with global warming, this non-delegation doctrine that goes back to when FDR was being frustrated by a reactionary Supreme Court then to get the New Deal passed. That's clearly looming, is it not? That isn't that, that, that the is, next step in their agenda? Right. That's a originalism is a vessel for a whole set of reaction in the hands of this court of, of a whole set of reactionary, um, you know, political choices that they they want to dress up. Um, and the 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 EPA decision you just sketched um, is perilous and. And has doesn't isn't it doesn't even come dressed up as originalism. It's it's simply spun out of whole cloth by um, a reactionary court a century ago, or or no less than a century ago, when in the battle over the New Deal. And I'll tell you something, me and what's kind of um, breathtaking is even that sort of court on which the conservatives and right-wing justices are fashioning themselves. That court itself clung to this notion of non-delegation for exactly one decision. And then it, it gave up the ghost. It never, the, the old court, the old reactionaries never could swallow this idea because this idea really does um, condemn any effort to create a modern regulatory state. It really hamstrings government in, a, in, a, in, in, in such a severe way that the old court said, look, 
as long as Congress gives agencies what the court said is a modicum of guidance, a general idea of what the agency's job is, then the agency has the authority to go forward and regulate as problems arise, which is exactly what the EPA was doing in this case. So given the role of Leonard Leo, this Opus Dei character who's able to handpick the almost the entire Supreme Court and the Trump judiciary and has extraordinary power for one man who obviously doesn't, his beliefs don't represent the diversity within Catholicism, let, to, let alone the beliefs within the diverse religions we have in this multicultural society of ours. And then on top of that, the EPA decision with this move towards a non-delegation doctrine, is that to say that this is a one-two punch, that what we are up against now is laissez-faire capitalism and religious fundamentalism? Look, I think to understand why the Federalist Society has the importance that it has in our politics and in the judicial appointments that you were just describing, you have to understand what the political alliance looks like that formed uh, to create the modern Republican Party. And in opposition to, on the one hand, the New Deal's building up of a serious regulatory state that could rein in the excesses of uh, you know, private enterprise and actually have government potentially intervene on behalf of ordinary people and redistribution and social security and all the things uh, that the um, that the conservative the economic conservatives have been opposing ever since the New Deal. What happened around the late 70s and early 80s is that an alliance was formed. And what you described as a one-two punch is actually a description of a political coalition between certain religious conservatives disgruntled with the Warren court threatening to, you know, getting rid of prayer in school and uh, Southern racist whites who did not like desegregation and economic conservatives sort of put together a coalition all for different reasons cared a great deal about opposing the Warren court. And so the politics of judicial appointments in this country have ever since been largely about that conservative coalition, putting people on the court whose ideology was formed in opposition to what the Warren court was. Now, liberals throughout that time have not had a similar ideological mission. Instead, there's been a sort of, let's not move to the right, let's stay moderate, Let's, uh, you know, respect stare decisis. Let's allow the court to be autonomous and separate and let's respect the court. That was the politics that kind of liberals in the second half of the 20th century uh, had about the court. And it's a politics that does not put liberals in a very good position to criticize the court when it has gone far, far off the right end. Um, and so what we're seeing now is a kind of necessary pivot where progressives today are like conservatives in the late 1970s or something like that, uh, or mid 1970s, progressives today find themselves facing a court that has uh, implemented a vision of what the country should look like that is very far 
from where the American, where they uh, are and where actually many of the American people are, most of the American people. This court is so far to the right that vast majorities of Americans oppose both of the uh, punches that you mentioned. And so it's, it's now going to be a time where progressives need to take a more political uh, view of the court than they have before, a little bit emulating the view that conservatives began to take uh, many decades ago, which resulted in someone like Leonard Leo having the role he has today. So let's then turn to your book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, and your essay at the Boston Review, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. Let me just read from the essay. There are at least three key battles. First, it is time for progressives to reclaim the First Amendment, contesting the way it has been weaponized as a tool to thwart egalitarian legislation in campaign finance and labor law. Second, we must forge the link between racial justice and political economy, widening the constitutional lens through which we see questions of race beyond anti-discrimination law and voting rights to include substantive issues of mass incarceration, healthcare, public investment, job creation, and wealth inequality. Third, we must bring political economy back into view in areas where liberals retreated from politics and ceded power to economists, such as in antitrust, monetary policy, and corporate law. And we're continuing the conversation on this 4th of July weekend with Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity, and also joining us is William Forbath, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. And together they are the co-authors of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And they have an essay at the Boston Review, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. So are you guys uh, arguing for social democracy? <laughs> That's a good question. The short answer is yes. But what we're arguing is not social democracy is a good thing, let alone social democracy as, you know, as Americans fancy it's practiced in Western Europe needs to be imported here. Um, what we're arguing instead is that there is a sort of dormant, largely forgotten tradition on the liberal and left side of American life going back all the way you know, to the beginning and running through um, the New Deal, which said that our constitution, not just social democracy is a good thing because of you know, some set of value commitments, but that our constitution, um, as generation after generation of reformers understood it, imposed affirmative duties on government. It didn't limit what government could do alone. It did do that, but equally it imposed obligations and duties to ensure a broad distribution of wealth and a measure of real sort of empowerment to ordinary people. Um, and over time, ordinary people came to include more than white guys. So these three threads, no oligarchs, broad distribution of wealth and power, the inclusion of everybody, 
we're seeing not as just good values that mapped onto some 20th century social democratic outlook, but rather a much older, much more right in, in the American grain style tradition that was constitutional. But once liberals started right thinking the courts were the only game in town when it came to interpreting and applying the constitution, right? The gig was up because those ideas, the ones I just sketched, are ones that legislatures have to undertake, are ones that the administrative state has to undertake. And um, that requires a constitutional outlook that steps away from the idea that the courts are the most important interpreters and elaborators of the constitution. So this is kind of a fundamental, what Joey was evoking as liberals need to kind of take a new and oppositional stance, the book elaborates in a more affirmative way as a lab recovering and reinventing for today and tomorrow, an old outlook, um, which in the, in the early 20th century comes to resemble social democracy, but has much deeper roots. Well, your essay though starts out with talking about what happened in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, where, just to quote from the article, for a brief moment before collapsing back to the familiar patterns of polarization and obstruction, the federal government stepped in with the money to rescue vast numbers of Americans from economic ruin. So, Joseph, that's why I, I'm assuming that we're talking about social democracy here, because social democracy is predicated upon the simple notion that you pay your taxes and in exchange for your taxes, you get government services. Now, we don't have that fundamental notion in our politics, and, and it would be really helpful to bring it back as a core understanding because guns and abortion and all these other issues are distractions from what should be the core function of a government, surely, to be stewards of our tax money and to be wise and compassionate stewards of our tax money and give us the government services that we deserve and which we paid for. Yeah, you know, uh, I like social democracy a lot. Um, and, and as you can uh, hear in Willie's answer, there are some real resonances between social democracy as practiced, especially in like Western European countries, and some of the arguments that progressives in this country made. But what our book is trying to do really is show that there's a different foundation, a, a sort of American foundation for getting to some of the same places, also some that might be different, uh, which has to do really with going back all the way to the idea that, that this is a republic and not an oligarchy. And if you have too much concentrated wealth, you know, even Thomas Jefferson could see that if you had you know, too large holdings of land, too few people controlling too much of the money and the land and the resources that, that you're not gonna have a democracy. And so that our constitution is going to have to find a way to make it possible and indeed to require the enactment of laws like, you know, originally you could talk about breaking up landed estates, but then you quickly get into in reconstruction, distributing the land to the freed former slaves or uh, building schools or later 
creating antitrust law to break up big concentrations of wealth that are threatening to ordinary people. And so I, I think there's a there's a resemblance between where you end up and the and the kind of modern social democracy uh, story that you were just telling um, about you know uh, government basically doing the right thing by its citizens and taxpayers. Certainly, there's overlap, but I wouldn't be completely confident that um, that it's exactly the same. And I think that this this old American tradition that we're arguing progressives should pay much more attention to, and that our book is largely a sort of a history of, um, and that then has quite significant implications for today, including in all of the areas that you started out with. And part of why we we opened with the, or we brought in this COVID example is because I feel like what COVID showed a lot of Americans is that when necessary, it's possible for government to do quite a lot more than the kind of neoliberal uh, last few decades of the 20th century and early 21st government, you know, even in the hands of, of you know, liberal presidents sort of Bill Clinton and, and whatever, there's, there's a lot more that government can usefully do and may need to do. And uh, we saw it during COVID and the question is, well, can we sustain any of that? in a time where we may not have as much of an acute pandemic, but we still have dire forms of inequality of a kind that many generations of Americans would have said threaten democracy. So let's then talk about the core issue here, whether or not we are an oligarchy or a plutocracy or a democracy. And it would seem that recent events, particularly with Biden's efforts, to deal with COVID and to deal with the necessary transition away from fossil fuels to save the environment and the planet, they've been thwarted. So am I too cynical in suggesting that we have two parties, the Republicans that the oligarchy and the plutocracy own outright and the Democrats who they rent and all it takes is you, for the establishment is to peel off two Democrats, Manchin, and cinema, and you thwart reform. So you maintain the power of the 1% and the 99% gets shafted. Well, I'll just say briefly, I really want to add more that I think you're slightly too cynical about where, where the Democrats are. Um, I think there's been a wild pulling apart of the two parties in recent years and decades with Republicans much more purely and forthrightly embracing the deregulatory agenda, the, the Federalist Society and the sort of let's tear down what we have built of an American uh, state. But Democrats have also moved, not as much and not as uniformly, and certainly there are two very prominent holdouts you just mentioned, but much of the Democratic Party is in a place today where I think that uh, a few more Democratic senators and we could be seeing a very different political world in which you could have a solid majority behind policies that create a more inclusive and multiracial you know, view of, of how our capitalist system should function. And you see glimpses of that in things like Obamacare, which really did change the way 
that large swath of our economic life functions. But I think we're, we are possibly on the cusp of, of big change there. So I guess I would be a little less cynical than you, although certainly the, uh, the mansion and cinema story uh, is, is enough to make anyone a little cynical. William, what's your thoughts on the, whether we are a democracy or, not, or a plutocracy and which trend is the more powerful or destructive one? Well, you know, the answer to the second, section, second question is, is, is pretty clear from, you know, the book we've just written that, you know, the democratic thread is the one that um, I embrace. I think what we are, as far as the first question goes, is, is neither, a, you know, a well, you know, a, you know, well-tuned democracy by any stretch, nor a full-blown oligarchy either. We're, we're a, you know, very badly flawed democracy sliding um, into oligarchy and, and a more and more entrenched kind of economic rule, you know, or more and more entrenched political economic ruling class, which is sort of another more modern expression for an oligarchy, that, that we're, we're at a crisis moment. Um, and the crisis is much more acute than Joey and I ever imagined it would be when we started writing this book, you know, almost 10 years ago. Um, and the, the difference between what we're putting forward and the kind of social insurance style, social democracy you sketched a moment ago is partly about power that we think and the tradition that we're reinventing and recovering has always held that what's at stake is not simply the material well-being of every member of society. What's also at stake is, a, is, is the distribution of power as well, not just material well-being but whether ordinary people have the wherewithal um, and the kinds of institutional resources to enjoy clout over not just, you know, getting decent health insurance, but shaping the future of, of, of the economy itself, that the economy is a political creation, not a delicate machinery that we need experts in the Fed to run, that the Fed itself is the creature of politics and has to be accountable to politics. So that the, um, I think that, that we will recuperate, you know, the Democratic and Republican, small r Republican side of, of our traditions, you know, when and if the Dems are able to um, mobilize broad enough majorities to push back against the court, to push back against sort of not every sector of the corporate elite. I don't think every sector of the U.S. corporate, corporate elite is indifferent to climate change. I think fossil fuels and certain other particularly reactionary sectors of American capital are indifferent to, to climate change. And then there are other sectors who simply don't, don't want things like money and credit and banking accountable in, in the deeply democratic ways that the book and the tradition that we're talking about has long understood they had to be. So well, I think it would be very uphill, but um, I'm hopeful. Well, we've run out of time, but let me quickly read your last chapter of your essay to, to sum things up. 
Our constitution is the constitution of a republic, not an oligarchy. It can continue to work that way only if we manage to prevent excessive concentration of political and economic power. We must disperse political and economic power widely enough to ensure that economic opportunity is broadly shared and racially inclusive. These are not merely constitutionally permissible goals, they are constitutional necessities. Legislatures and citizens who hope to reverse the present slide into oligarchy need to recover these arguments and deploy them to help rebuild the democratic foundations of our republic. I thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Fishkin, who is a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, who previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity. And also joining us is William Forbuth, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement. And together they are co-authors of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And they have an essay at the Boston Review, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappear.